It is a joy and privilege to be with you. I uh, recently spoke at the Virginia Presbytery meeting, and, and after that meeting spoke further with David, and he uh, extended uh, an offer to come here. So I want to um, thank David and thank the session for the holy privilege of being able to stand behind the holy desk and open up God's holy word with God's holy people. So if you would, take your Bibles and turn uh, to the New Testament epistle to the Ephesians. I've known David for many, many years, but I've got another connection to this church. Uh, My other connection to this church is uh, through David's brother-in-law, Nathan Trice. Nathan and I have been good friends for, I guess, going on, uh, what, about 30 years now. So it's a joy and privilege to be in, I think, some of Nathan's old stomping grounds, at least Virginia. And so it's good to be here with you all. Uh, I used to be a pastor in the, uh, the greater Charlotte area. I pastored a church in Albemarle, uh, North Carolina, and then pastored the Huntersville Church. And I was, I was the senior pastor at the Huntersville Church before I began my uh, service with World Witness full-time. And right before we made that transition uh, with the pastoral staff, we had just completed a sermon series, and we were thinking about where should we go next? What, what should we preach through next? And we finally landed on preaching through Paul's epistles to the Galatians, the Ephesians, the Philippians, and the Colossians. And I preached the first two sermons from Galatians, and then I was gone, out fundraising, and and never to return. No, I've been once or twice uh, since, uh, but I've been mainly on the road and now full-time with World Witness. But as I began um, a series like preaching through Galatians or Ephesians, or teaching from one of these books, one of the questions that I like to ask myself is this. Let me just let you know, this is a long runway before we get to the reading of God's Word. All right, Don't worry, we'll get there, and it'll make sense once we get there. But when I prepare for such series, one of the questions that I'll ask myself is this. Is there a particular emotion that the author under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is exhibiting in the writing of this epistle? Uh, the, the author, again, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing to a particular people or person, writing about particular issues, and typically that elicits some sort of emotion in the heart and the mind and the pen of the author. And if you ask yourself that particular question of the epistle that comes before Ephesians, which is Galatians, Is there an emotion that we can clearly see that the Apostle Paul was exhibiting as he's penning that letter? The answer is yes. Any guesses as to what emotion Paul is showing us uh, seemingly throughout every chapter? It's anger. He is morally, righteously angry. He's indignant. Why? Why? Because God had used him in the planting, in the forming of the churches of Galatia. And then God, in his providence, moved Paul on. And after God moved Paul on, others came behind Paul. False teachers came into that same network of churches and began to spread what I would call an anti-gospel. What they began to say, what they began to share with these Galatian Christians was this. The Apostle Paul came and, uh, yes, he spoke to you about being a Christian, and, and, and that's good. 
But to be a real Christian, you must first be a good Jew. You must first adopt the kosher diet. You must first uh, adopt the Jewish calendar. And you men, you must be circumcised. If you do those things and believe in Jesus, then you'll be a true Christian, a real Christian. And that's the message that they were presenting to the Galatians. And Paul gets, gets ear to that. He hears of that and he is angry because what they are peddling is not gospel. It's, it's an anti-gospel. It's not a message that leads to heaven. It's a message that leads to hell because anything that's a Jesus plus what you do is no gospel at all. It is solely through the merit and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ that we receive through faith, and that faith is a gift that any man, any woman, any boy, any girl is saved. Amen? And so he's mad. And if you read through Galatians, you can see his anger. So the answer to the question, if you ask it, is there an emotion on, on display in Galatians is yes. Now, if you go to the epistle after Ephesians, you go to Philippians, and you ask that same question, what's the answer? Yes. What emotion does the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, exhibit in the writing of the epistle to the Philippians? Any guesses? Joy. I mean, you can't go, uh, it seems like you can't go a, a sentence without seeing the word joy or rejoice, right? He is just, he's just calling the Philippians to be a people filled with joy, filled with rejoicing. Which is ironic, isn't it? Because where is the Apostle Paul writing from when he's writing the epistle to the Philippians? Prison. And he's saying to them, brothers and sisters, you can be people of joy despite the circumstances of life. Why? Well, this is the way I would describe what he's saying in the Philippians. He is saying to them, you can be people of joy because you are resurrection people. You believe in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you believe in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, you believe that God can take the darkest moment of human history, the cross of Christ, and through that darkness bring about the salvation of all of God's people, and we know that in the resurrection of Jesus. And if God can take the darkest moment of human history and change it for blessing for all of His people, He can take your dark moments and He can use those for His glory and your good. So rejoice. It doesn't matter the circumstances of your life. And brothers and sisters, Philippians... You may soon face, you may soon face difficulties. You may soon face persecution. You may soon face imprisonment like I'm experiencing. So in Galatians, he's angry. In Philippians, he's what? Joyful. How about Ephesians? Let's ask that same question about this epistle. Is there a central primary emotion on display in the Apostle Paul as he has penned this letter or has it penned? And I think the answer again is yes. But what is it? Some might say, well, he's, he's joyful and he is that. Others would say he's grateful and he's most certainly grateful. 
But I think the way I would describe it is he's just excited. He's enthralled with God. He's exuberant about salvation found in Jesus Christ for all of God's people. And he's so excited. And you can see this in the very first chapter. Flip back to chapter 1. Now, many of you probably know this, but when you, when you look at verses 3 through 14, that's just, you know, in the original language, that's just one long run-on sentence. There is no punctuation whatsoever. Now, the ancients didn't necessarily use as much punctuation as we do, but brothers and sisters, they did use punctuation. Let me ask you, why do you use punctuation? When you write a... I hope you do use punctuation. I know it's trendy not to, and not to capitalize. But if you capitalize your, you know, the words that need to be, the letters that need to be, and you use punctuation, why do you use punctuation? To tell the person who's reading what you write when they can do what? Pause and take a breath, right? A comma means what? They can take a half pause, right? A period means what? Take a full breath. All right? That's one of the reasons for punctuation. There's no punctuation in verses 3 through 14. What does that tell you? He's so excited, he cannot come up for air. He just keeps going and going and going and going. What a glorious salvation is ours in Jesus Christ from all eternity. And he's so excited. And that excitement leads from that. Oh, and by the way, I, I, I preached this message at Erskine College probably uh, uh, over a year ago now. One of their chapel message, um, services. And I knew there would be some professors, hopefully, in the chapel uh, service. And uh, so I said, um, you, you professors, imagine Paul is one of your students. And Paul's paper is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. And he turns in that paper to you. Um, you. You're going to have to give him an A++ on content, right? But whatever you do with his grade for grammar, that's between you and God. You know, uh, so he's, he's super excited. That turns over, spills over into that wonderful prayer of thanksgiving at the end of chapter 1. Then chapter 2, we, we, we see that excitement continue. He's exuberant about the salvation that's in Christ, uh, but because it's a, it's a gift of God's grace, not of works, lest any man should boast, right? And so he's, he's thrilled, he's excited, he's exuberant. And that leads him to the second part of chapter 2 where we get what's really got him excited. What's really boggling the mind of the great Apostle Paul. And that's this. When the Apostle Paul, by the sovereign working of the Spirit, is brought to faith in Jesus Christ as Messiah on the road to Damascus, I think the Apostle Paul began to think, Oh Lord, do this with my fellow countrymen. Bring other ethnic Jews to faith in Jesus Christ as Messiah. That's what you're doing, isn't it, God? That's a glorious work. Do it. That's what he was expecting. And God was doing that. But guess what? God was doing what? More. Because God was not only going to bring ethnic Jews to believe in Jesus as the Messiah, God's going to now bring Gentiles. And that's blowing the apostles' mind. That's the long runway for chapter 3. Let's read it in its entirety, then let's focus on the doxology at the end. 
And as we read through chapter 3, emphasize you, the word you, the word us. Because in the Apostle Paul's mind, he's, he's just he's thrilled about this. He's being blown away by the fact that God is bringing him and other ethnic Jews and Ephesian Gentiles together as one people. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of His power to me. Though I am the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you, you, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you, you Gentiles, may be filled with all the fullness of God. And His excitement now crescendos in this glorious doxology. I'm going to ask you to stand. Let's, let's stand for the reading of these two verses. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Let me give you now two illustrations to illustrate the truth, particularly of verse 20. Two stories about two Gentiles. The first story, you can forget about it after you leave this place because it's about me. It's autobiographical. The second story, I hope you never forget. First story is about me. Uh, I, 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 I must confess I didn't grow up as a ARP. I didn't grow up as a Presbyterian. 
I didn't grow up as Reformed. I grew up as a, take a guess, Baptist. How could you guess? My grandfather was a Baptist minister. Um, grew up as Baptist. Uh, I, I was, I, as I grew up, I had no idea, no thought that I would one day be a minister of God's Word. Had no thought, no idea that one day I'd have the glorious privilege of serving the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church as a missionary with world witness throughout the world. Last, last Sunday I was preaching in Sahiwal, Pakistan, and it was 108 degrees in a church packed with like 300 people. So um, I never would have guessed. Um, I grew, grew up in Newnan, Georgia. Uh, I ended up going to college. I had no idea what I wanted to do with life. I said, Dad, what should I do with life? He said, son, be an engineer. Okay, Dad, I'll be an engineer. So I went to Georgia Tech. Uh, started as an electrical engineer, soon changed that to a civil engineer. I co-opted. That meant I worked a quarter, I go to school a quarter. I worked for the Georgia Power Company. I worked at a coal-fired plant in the western part of Georgia, Plant Wansley. And, and I remember my first day on the job. I drove up to Plant Wansley. It's a beautiful drive, beautiful grounds. Finally get to the plant itself. The parking lot was between two massive cooling towers. I parked, got out of my little beater truck, walked toward the security gate, and, and I remember praying a prayer something like this. Oh, Lord, thank you for this opportunity. May I end up being a good employee. May I graduate from college. May I get a good engineering job that I can provide for the family that you will provide for me and that I would be a good Baptist. Serve in my local church. That was my prayer. I walked in. I had no idea what was ahead. A, f a few quarters later, I find myself working alongside of one of these things called an elder. An elder from a Reformed church, an elder from an associate Reformed Presbyterian church. And I didn't know it at the time, but he looked at me, and I suspect he had this prayer, Oh Lord, uh, enable me to change this Baptist boy into an ARP. <laughs> so he started to work on me. He began to ask me questions like, Lee, have you ever read Romans chapter 9? Have you ever read Ephesians chapter 1? And I'm scratching my head and saying, well, I guess I have, but I must not have gotten out of it what I should have. Maybe I need to go back and read them again. And then he began to give me Banner of Truth booklets. And then he began to give me tapes of R.C. Sproul. And before you know it, this Baptist boy had become what? Reformed. Before you know it, another month later, my wife had become reformed. Before you know it, another month later, her parents had become reformed. And we found ourselves reformed in a Baptist church. And it was a little difficult. <laughs> Some of you may have had that experience. And the Lord, in His great providence, had enabled my wife and I to build our first home two miles away from the church, ARP church, that this ruling elder served in. And we were soon ARPs. And shortly thereafter, I find myself, yes, I'm an engineer. Yes, I end up graduating from Georgia Tech. Yes, then I go on to work for Delta Airlines. But I soon find myself coming under care of Second Presbytery, the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, to be a minister. And soon I'm ordained. And now I have the holy privilege of standing before you, proclaiming God's word as a world witness missionary. I had no idea that this was ahead, but God did.
What does verse 20 say? Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask, O Lord, may I be a good Baptist and a good engineer, all that we ask or think. You can forget that now. Now the story that I want you to forget. And as I began to tell it, some of you who are a little bit older, you'll recognize where I'm going. And let me let you know, particularly parents of little ones, I'm going to be very careful. Um, Let's imagine for ourselves a 12-year-old boy by the name of Benjamin. Benjamin loved his grandparents. Benjamin lived in the country of Rwanda. He had gone to visit his grandparents and the year was 1994. He went to visit his grandparents. He's there in their small home hut. And his grandparents began to hear a lot of commotion, a lot of noise coming from the distance and it's getting louder. And they recognized what was going on. The genociders were coming. They got little Benjamin and they, they, they put him up into the, the rafters of the hut home, covered him up, hid him, and they told him, no matter what happens, Benjamin, don't make a sound. Don't move. And sure enough, the genociders come in and they do their dirty business. And right beneath young Benjamin... His grandparents entered into glory. The genociders left. Miraculously, Benjamin didn't make a noise. Several hours later, Benjamin slides down, goes past his grandparents one last time, and then is on the run for the remainder of those 100 days of sheer terror. 100 days in which French-trained young Hutus with machetes annihilated one-tenth of the population of that country. Anywhere from 800,000 to uh, 1.2 million. Tutsis and moderate Hutus strewn across the beautiful countryside of Rwanda. 100 days that happens as the world yawns. Benjamin survived twice by playing possum. At the end of those 100 days, young Benjamin's on the run. He's in the capital of Kigali. He's found by missionaries. And those missionaries took young Benjamin in. And they took care of him. He was, he was like an orphan. He was like a, a street urchin. They took him in. They cared for him. They fed him. They clothed him. They provided an education. That education ended with a college education. At the end of his, his time in college, Benjamin senses God's call upon his life to ministry to children. But he thinks, I, I, I want a theological education. And I want it outside of Rwanda. So he begins to find as many addresses of as many American seminaries as he could. And he begins to fire off letters or emails to them. 
please, would you accept me as a student? No seminary responded except one. Erskine Theological Seminary. Then Dean Rubel said, Benjamin, yes, we'll take you. Come on, we'll bring you over here. Come to Dewest, South Carolina. Can you imagine the culture shock? Rwanda, Rwanda to Dewest. And that Erskine community, both seminary, college, and the Dewest community, just took him in. And they took care of him. And he got two degrees. And he networked with all kinds of ARPs and Baptists and others in the upstate of South Carolina. And here's the miraculous thing. After that, he went home. Now why is that miraculous? Because so many people from third world countries who come to the United States to get an education, guess what they do? They stay. I can't blame some of them. Benjamin goes back to a country that had been rent asunder by genocide. He goes back. Why? Because he had a heart for children like he had been. Orphans, street urchins. He goes back. He gets a home in Kigali. He opens up that home to the children. And thus began a ministry that's now known as Reach the Children of Rwanda International that is sponsoring and caring in part for nearly 800 to 900 children in that beautiful country. And, and, and they even have a school. And that school gives a Christian education to 400 children. Nice little Christ, uh, Christian uniforms. A good Christian education. Uh, one meal a day. So some health uh, insurance provided for them, other things as they need it. It's a wonderful ministry. And Benjamin, because he's got a heart for children, he's a great educator, because he's got a heart for children, that meant he also had a heart for their families, if they had families, their homes, if they had homes. Because the children come to school and they bring the, home, the problems from home to school. And so he thinks, how can I help with, with the extended families? Okay, I'll have all my teachers go on regular home visitations. Can you imagine that? Your school teacher coming to your house? And coming to your house to see how things are going and how they can pray for you? And if you go with, with me one day to Rwanda, we'll go on some of those home visitations. And your heart will never be the same. And so you go on these home visitations, and Benjamin did, and he soon figures out the needs of those families are immense. Who could he turn to for help? He turns to the local churches. He goes to the local churches, and he sees those churches have immense needs. And one of the greatest needs that they have is for pastors to be trained, to be faithful ministers of God's Word. And so he takes those needs and he turns back to his contacts in the United States. He turns to, to just regular individuals and he says, will you help me sponsor children? And he turns to World Witness and he says, will you help me sponsor and train these pastors? And so now, one Gentile, Lee, is working alongside another Gentile, Benjamin, in God's holy plan. Now when Benjamin was a 12-year-old boy going to visit his grandparents, do you think he had any idea that this day would come? Who did? God. Verse 20. Now to him 
who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. How do you apply that passage to your life? Here are two applications. The first one, I think, uh, the entirety of the book of Ephesians, but particularly this verse, calls us to have big thoughts of God. Now to him is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. We're called to have great and growing thoughts of God. We are to be growing in our understanding of the greatness and the supremacy of our glorious God. That our God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That our God is eternal. That our God is ever-present. That our God is all-powerful. That our God is all-knowing. That our God is a God of righteousness. That our God is a God of holiness. Our God is a God of justice. Our God is a God of mercy and love and grace. We should be growing in our understanding of God, our understanding as we sit under God's Word, as we study God's Word, should be ever deepening and ever widening in our understanding of who our God is. Are you growing in your understanding? Or are you resting on your laurels? Oh, I've learned these things. Oh, I, I, I know the shorter catechism. Oh, I've I've studied systematic theology. Are you resting in your laurels or are you growing in your understanding of God? First application, grow. Grow. Seek God's grace and growing in your understanding of His greatness. Second application. Make big asks of God. Now to Him who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask, make big asks of God. Pray. And offer to the Lord great petitions. My suspicion is that some of your prayers are wimpy, anemic, weak, pitiful. And the reason I suspect that is, is because I suspect you're like me. Yes, God can handle the little stuff. Throw it at Him. Pray. Oh, Lord, I've got a cold right now. A little sore throat. Would you please, would you, Lord, give me, give me relief? Lord, I've, um, I'm having this difficulty with a co-worker. We're just not getting along, and it's just making work difficult. Lord, would you please work in my life and that person's life? Oh, Lord, I've got a test ahead, and I don't know if I've studied enough. I seek to be more faithful in my studies. Lord, Lord, would you give me good memory when it comes to test time? Ask the little things of God. Do! But if that's as far as you go, your prayers are too weak. They're too timid. They are anemic. Pray big prayers. Pray a big prayer like this. Oh, Lord... 
Take the earthquakes that struck Syria and eastern Turkey and use them for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ that many Muslims in those areas will see the mercy and the love extended to them by Christians and will be brought out of darkness into light into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, you can do it. Pray a big prayer like this. Lord, Russia doesn't belong to Putin. Ukraine doesn't belong to Putin. Both of these countries ultimately belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. You tell us that in Psalm 2. Oh Lord, in this war. Can you do it? Pray a big, big prayer like this. Oh Lord, never allow the beautiful country of Rwanda to be rent asunder again by another genocide. Oh Lord, Bring people from every tribe and tongue and nation to bend the knee to King Jesus and to praise and worship Him. Are you praying big prayers like that? When you come to God to pray, you are coming into the royal throne room of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Ask things of Him that are befitting His glory. But here's the point of verse 20. No matter how big your thoughts are of God, and no matter how big your asks are of God, guess what? You'll never out-big God. He's going to be far greater than you can imagine And he's going to do far more than you would have ever guessed or asked. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And all of God's people said, Amen. Here's your big think and a big ask. Begin praying. You probably already do, but pray more for these covenant children. The Lord has blessed this congregation with many. I see them. They belong to the Lord. Pray that in their hearts and in their lives, God would raise them up to profess faith in Christ as Lord and Savior. And that one or two or three or more of them would be drawn by God's Spirit to be sent to the nations. And that through one or two or three or four of them, stories like you heard at the beginning of this service will be told. Can God do it? Can God do far more than that? Yes. Let's pray. Holy Father, you are gracious, you're merciful. You have revealed yourself in this glorious creation. You've revealed yourself, O triune God, in this glorious word. This word that reveals more and more to us as under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit you move men of old and as now you move us 
in the reading and hearing of this word. Enable our thoughts of you to just explode. To become more glorious, to become bigger. Fuel in us a courage to come boldly to the throne of grace, making bold petitions unto you. And then, O Lord, astound us as you'll be far greater and will do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. For it's in Jesus' name we pray.